We're back. On last week's program, we talked about Homer, whose works, the Iliad and the Odyssey, are basically considered to be the first writings of Western civilization. Catherine Holvine founded the group The Readers of Homer because she felt that these great works deserved to be read in public. And thanks to her, he is in some of the world's great cities, in audience participation events, in public, and sometimes all night long. Catherine, we ended off last week talking about translations and how you felt, you know, you wanted to give credit was where it was due because it's, it's a tough job to do and, and to do right. Uh, I had to laugh thinking about an interview with Joseph Heller, the author of, of Catch-22. He said at one point that uh, he got a letter from a, a, uh, someone in Denmark saying he was doing the Danish translation of Catch-22, but he was not able to find anywhere in the regulations where they were spelled out. Could you give him more information? He said, you know, I've just had some doubts about that Danish translation. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an easy thing to get wrong. So it's, it's a huge enterprise, and it's worldwide, but it seems as though English is particularly English poets and translators, and sometimes they're one person, both, they do both, as Stephen Mitchell, for example. Um, and I don't know, there's a real resonance and desire in uh, English-speaking countries to um, to translate Homer. One thing we've always said on this program when we talk about it, maybe a difficult topic, is that the, the toughest part about it is not talking about a difficult topic, but to take that and reduce it down to where it's sort of um, digestible, I guess. And, and I guess it, when it comes to Homer, people study his work, and what strikes him, and I guess you've written about this too, is that it's very simple language, and yet he's able to convey such, such wonderful ideas. Very beautifully simple language. I think in the 19th century, Matthew Arnold said Homer is rapid, direct, plain, and noble. And I think those are the qualities a translator search for and try to achieve. This list of places where you've done these, these public events, it's a pretty impressive list at this point. New York City and Brussels and Montevideo, Uruguay, and I guess even the uh, one, one of Homer's birthplaces. <laughs> like seven <laughs> people claiming him uh, right, right. in Kios. Which, which are the, uh, what stands out among these various events, some, uh, some interesting uh, aspects of it? Well, and uh, I, don't forget the Getty, Getty Villa, which we did a year ago. And uh, another one that you didn't mention that I'm very proud of was doing it um, at the Biblioteca Alexandrina, yes. which stands for, the, of course, the, the, the Alexandrian Library, which is a beautiful, gorgeous piece of architecture uh, in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. And we did it there. We did the Iliad in Arabic. And I try to do these readings in the language of the host country, therefore Greek in Greece and Spanish in Montevideo and uh, Arabic in Alexandria. And that was thrilling because you had, the, you know, the Greek influence in Alexandria is enormous. And you had a lot of students who were trying to read Greek or trying to read English or doing their own Arabic. It was very moving. It was wonderful. Well, Catherine, I, I fear to go with this next question uh, because, you know, I, I made a career out of avoiding English classes and, and, and poetry in particular. 
But I'm trying to make up for some lost time here. Uh, reading about this, I guess the poems were in, is it dactylic pentameter? And they were constructed that way. And, and I'm, I'm intrigued by how in poetry there has to be a certain way that it comes across. Is there a way you can sort of explain how, how that goes down with, with these epics? That's a brave and good question. <laughs> I'm scared. It's dactyl- dactylic hexameter, actually. Okay. And that means it's a fairly long line because hexameter has six beats, and and uh, dactylic is the nature of the meat, and then we we call it a falling rhythm. And uh, the thing is, uh, we speak with rhythms. Yes. We don't know that we do, but we mm-hmm. all do. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is think of your name. If somebody mispronounces or puts the emphasis on the wrong syllable mm-hmm. of, of your name, you mm-hmm. correct them. Mm-hmm. So we're always doing rhythm. Mm-hmm. We don't know it. I mean, we just forget it. But I have to teach students how to, how to uh, recognize that they are speaking in rhythm because language is very musical very musical and any poet loves the music of poetry and and I certainly do and and this is this is what the meter does so dactylic hexameter is a special line of ancient greek of homeric greek and it's it's very different than our meter our natural shakespearean meter uh which is iambic pentameter and that's where you got the pentameter that's right crossed, and yeah. and um, mm-hmm. because that tends to be Da-dum, with short long, short long, short long, short long, and a five five times that is that it means pentameter. So that's Shakespeare's line, roughly, basically. And Homer's is so opposite because ancient Greek has a very different rhythm and sound mm-hmm. and music mm-hmm. from English, even even uh, Renaissance English. So it tends to fall. So the rhythm, the dactyl, it goes it goes like this. Boom, 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 and it ends with two beats. Boom, boom. So that is that is what somebody well versed in Homeric poetry would recognize as this great pounding, falling, surging rhythm. Very unfamiliar in English and hard to translate, and hard to even get the sense of because it's it's like horses galloping. It's just great, but um, um, they differ. Every language, Chinese, everyone would have a different kind of native uh, meter. Well, I have a uh, one of your previous. Uh, I guess it's from the event in Alexandria, Egypt. Okay. A little book you had from from the, the Iliad, and and I guess if I were going to try and do this as you're describing, <laughs> if I were going to take a stab at it, the line is as dawn rose up in her golden robe from ocean's tides. I'd be doing it like, as dawn rose up in her golden robe, something like that. Look, that would be my third rule. Don't try to approximate. <laughs> Don't don't even make the effort. Okay, it's hard enough for translators to try to achieve that, and, and many is, of them not, just give up. You're not speaking up. ancient Greek. It's not really true to the <laughs> true anyway. It's it's just impossible. Okay. Yeah. That's enough of that. No, what you do is you read it for meaning. So you would you would not worry about the metrics. You would try to read it for meaning and beauty, and you'd get it right because of that. 
Well, I, I, you know, just as I mentioned, being an avoider of English classes I, and all this catching I have to do, uh, I just do a slight digression here. It's yeah. news to me that in the Odyssey that Helen and Troy got back together with Menelaus. I, I didn't know that. Uh, and Agamemnon gets bumped off in the sequel. Oh, yes, that's all part of the great, you know, the crumbs of the, the Homer that, that got elaborated upon. Um, yeah, Helen comes back. And I'm a little incredulous, frankly. After all the trouble, the face that launches a thousand ships, the war that goes on for ten years, she gets back yeah. together with her husband. Exactly. They both survive. Menelaus and <laughs> Helen, they survive. And in the Odyssey, the young boy, and it's part of the Odyssey is about a young boy coming of age, growing, growing into manhood, with a, a father who's absent. They don't know if he's alive or dead. He's missing in action, so to speak. And, and so he... He goes to try and find out about his father and goes and visits Helen and Menelaus, who are enormously rich and living in Sparta. And there they are. They're back together. And they're just, it's a beautiful little dramatic little gem that Homer does, making Menelaus rich but sort of unhappy, wouldn't he be? (laughs) And Helen rich but sort of discontent. And she takes drugs. And she puts drugs in people's drinks. Wow. You know why? To forget. Because mm. she's been the source of a lot of problems. So there's this kind of opiate <laughs> feeling in that, in that thing like, let's, let's forget the past. Yeah. Also true. These are the reasons, Homer. I mean, that's just one teeny example of why Homer seems so relevant. Yeah. Because if it's horrible and we made huge mistakes and we were guilty, quote, quote, of some terrible indiscretion or even causing a war, as she did, um, we want to forget. It's just true. As the sort of the MacGuffin, I guess, of the whole Iliad. Did, does she get any lines, by the way? Does she ever get to speak? Who? Helen. Helen. Do we ever hear from Helen, her? Helen. Oh, oh, she's a magnificent character. Okay. See, Homer is also a dramatist. Mm-hmm. And she, in, in the Iliad, I mean, yeah, in the Iliad, in both poems, she exists. But in the Iliad, she's a major um, person. And she's, we think of her as Helen of Troy. Is that mm-hmm. how you think of her? Yeah, that's how I think of Helen her. Helen of Troy, but she's really Helen of Greece. Mm-hmm. But then you run off with a Trojan, live in the Trojan palace. Uh, you become, after a long time, after 10 years, you're Helen of Troy. And so she, that's the thing. She is a very bifurcated kind of personality. And she's very uh, troubled uh, I, I don't want to say neurotic, and I certainly don't want to say schizophrenic, but she's hmm. she's um, an anxious, guilty-feeling person. She says, is, is this real? Did I do this? <laughs> Slut that I am. Uh, pretty powerful stuff it's, for her to acknowledge that. Can you update me also? What happens to Paris? He basically steals Helen, and he also kills Achilles by shooting him in the heel. What happens to him? He gets killed by... Achilles' son, Neoptolemus. But, oh. but actually, the death of Achilles is not in the poem. This is, remember at the beginning of, of the last interview, I said, start somewhere? Yeah. Well, it's also sort of end somewhere, you know? And so they end before Achilles dies. Hector dies. Hector is the prince of Troy. And we love Hector tremendously. We love his family. We care about the Trojans tremendously. Let me add right here, uh, probably the most important thing for our contemporary uh, issues is that one thing I love about Homer, uh, perhaps above all, is that he is so impartial. Because it's the Greeks who, who go back to get Helen, 
right, mm -hmm. to, to retrieve her mm -hmm. for this mighty prince, um, king, rather, uh, Menelaus, um, uh, and cause this enormous, futile, stupid, bloody, and ghastly war. And yet we care so much about the Trojans. Homer makes us care equally, absolutely equally, almost, some people say more, more about the Trojans than, than the uh, Greeks. We love Hector. He is a marvelous human being. And Priam, his father, is a great king. And we, we care deeply about them. So when Hector dies, I usually end up crying like I did at the Getty because the death, the, the last line of the poem is, such was the burial of Hector, breaker of horses. And it leaves you in tears because we have come to care about the quote, quote, enemy yeah. that much. So, I mean, this is the um, contemporaneity of Homer, is that he can see that that's what we need. And I could get on a soapbox here, so I'll stop. From what, what I know, he describes these activities of the gods acting like, like squabbling children. And the gods are like men, and the men are like gods, and it, they're all so human. <laughs> Well, that is part of the wonder of these poems. And one of the things I think is so amazing is that the gods, they're not silly. They, they have enormous power. They have tremendous, they have power. We are not as silly as they are. Why? Because we die and they don't. Mm -hmm. And they just live on and on and on and party around and, you know, cause little squabbles and are unfaithful or whatever that is um, up there in Olympus. And, and down here, we are faced with our mortality and life is precious and time is precious and, and so forth. And so occasionally the gods even almost envy that. It's very interesting um, because we have that sense of the preciousness of our lives that they don't need to have. So I think that that is actually a Homeric view. I think Homer feels that way, but some critics would not agree with that. And, and I gather that by, by writing these stories of the gods and their activities, in, in essence, uh, these works are, are it, it, some, they're religious in nature. They, they sort of they embellish the, uh, the stories the Greeks had about their gods uh, and, and, and basically provided, I guess, in essence, the equivalent of our Bible in some respects. Well, there, there are a lot of axioms and, and sort of uh, statements in their behavior and courtesy and hospitality and, and courage and valor and uh, uh, brother, brotherliness. And, uh, and, and as you said at one point, the women are very strong, extremely interesting and varied uh, in both poems and intelligent. We don't downplay the women. I mean, Penelope in the Odyssey is, you know, she's waiting for, looking for her absent husband. And he's famous as being crafty, wily, intelligent, curious. And um, uh, she is just as wily hmm. as she webs, weaves her uh, tapestry and unweaves it at night so that she never finishes it. So she doesn't have to marry a suitor. That's part of the plot. But it's a clever stratagem for someone who's not out there on the battlefield or in the world. She's just in her palace, but she's as clever a mate as Odysseus is uh, a wanderer out in the world. So that's a beautiful, beautiful portrait of equality and of marriage, that they are really like-minded, but they have different realms in which they're able uh, to operate. 
I'm fascinated that one of the events I, I gather you 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 uh, put together was it was a cruise in the Mediterranean that was more or less trying to follow the travels of Odysseus and having heard those great tales of the Cyclops and the, the whirlpool and all this as a boy, I thought, boy, that'd be that'd be a cool thing to do. And I guess you guys did it. Well, I didn't create that uh, cruise. It was a, a you know a well established uh, thing called Travel Dynamics International uh-huh. that mm-hmm. created it. But they did have us uh, as special people on the on the cruise to do a reading um, to follow the so-called path of Odysseus uh, I say so-called because it's controversial and um, uh, then read read on the ship board at night it was great fun yeah nice do you have some favorite characters when you do readings I do of course as I said I love Hector uh, and Agamemnon, I mean, uh, Agamemnon you dislike. Menelaus seems kind of puny. Ajax is a great, strong, silent bulwark of a soldier who you just admire. He's just wonderful. Odysseus is so intelligent. He's full of schemes. I have had people, students, who hate him because he <laughs> murders and he is... Yeah, he's pretty rough on the suitors. Oh, rough. He's got to eradicate them. Are you kidding? (laughs) No, he is very rough. And he's even rough on the the handmaids of Penelope who have slept with them. Yeah, I read that. They killed killed all those. Oh, oh, it's horrible. This this guy's tough. But he's got to be. I mean, he's pragmatic. And he's uh, so he's a very different kind of character uh, from Achilles in the Iliad. Achilles is pure, really. Mm -hmm. He's a killer. No question about um, it, because yeah. this is a warrior society, yeah. warrior poem. Yeah. But he is a killer, you know, in war. And he's a very interesting character. The more I read about Achilles, the more I sort of understand why he is so major. Um, you know, a lot of students first reading think he's just like um, the Terminator. You know, he's just nothing but a mm-hmm. machine gun. But he is a very pure character where Odysseus is completely compromised, <laughs> right and left. He's a relativist from the get-go. And, uh, and uh, you either like that or you don't, you know. Or you think of it as true. Whether you like it or not, you recognize it as having some very important human qualities. My goodness. I do have to ask. A lot of people are going to be familiar with Brad Pitt as Achilles in the movie Troy. I thought he was terrific. He was, did a good job. I thought he was terrific. And whoever played Odysseus, small role in that because mm-hmm. he's in the Iliad but small, was perfection. He was hmm. perfection. Hmm. I liked Hector, too. I liked okay. the movie quite uh, a bit. Okay. You know, I didn't like Helen. I mean, you've always got something to cry <laughs> about. But I thought the movie uh, was uh, stirring, and I thought it deserved a bigger success than it got. It's worth seeing. Yeah, I, I liked it. Yeah. yeah, I liked it, too. I, I do want to remind our listeners that it was Odysseus that had the idea of the, of the wooden horse to get Truly. into the gates. Yeah. He's a strategist. Yeah. He's an inventor. He's a highly creative, highly imaginative character. And that makes him curious about other women, curious about other cities. In fact, the first lines of the Odyssey said he's a man of interested in many minds and many cities. So that's a, a different kind of person. And I can't resist about the only joke I know about the, the <laughs> Iliad and, and, and the Odyssey, which was Woody Allen's commentary on it that... Uh, he was doing his version of it where King Priam looks out the window and says, Don't open the gates! Who the hell needs a wooden horse that size anyway? 
That's great. And of course, there's the far side of the, the guys coming up to the gate. They're going, open the gate. It's just a big wiener dog. And there's a bunch of soldiers under, you know. <laughs> that is, it's it's really hard to believe that that stratagem uh, was hard to possible. Yeah. Hard, hard to buy, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it what it does is show the range of Odysseus's creativity. I think that's more what it does, perhaps. Do you have a favorite among the two works? Oh, boy. I'm afraid to even say because they are both wonderful. I am Iliadic. I adore the Iliad. I think it's the masterpiece. I I just think it's magnificent. I love the structure of it. As I talked about, the impartiality that is so touching and so teaching and so valuable um and i uh I, but i love the odyssey because I, I i i respect curious minds and uh uh you know intellectual interests i i i love to travel myself mm-hmm. um i'm interested in a young boy's coming the, the notion of the fatherless boy ca- trying to come of age into a, a, a you know noble manhood <laughs> and uh i love the, the the marriage and the fact that uh, uh penelope is is his equal it's great i love it it's, it's not quite as beautiful to me as the iliad i didn't know this so i did some research that's not all there is to homer he did some additional poems besides the iliad and odyssey yes they're not of the same not stature. quite the same cali- stature. caliber <laughs> yeah all right well, Catherine, it's been great speaking with you. I, I know that a lot of people are going to want to attend this event. We want to remind people once again, this will be Friday, June 22nd. Well, actually, all the way to Saturday, June 23rd, because it starts at 7.30 p.m. and goes 12 hours. Bring your sleeping bag. Uh, <laughs> Go to sleep. Yeah, it, It's okay. Go to sleep. Wake <laughs> up. Hear the poem going on. And there'll probably be some Greek food and various yeah, musicians yeah, yeah. and dancing. Yeah, yeah. and exactly. And oh, we, want to, yeah. we want to direct people to your website, uh, which, which would be www.thereadersofhomer, one word, dot org. Everything's on there. All right. And people can also uh, email you at your at K-H-O-H-L-W-E-I-N at Gmail. Again, K-H-O-H-L-W-E-I-N. It's a difficult name, Catherine. Thank you. <laughs> hey, Catherine, I just I want to thank you for doing this. I think this is just a hell of an idea, a hell of an event you're putting on everywhere. And, and there's even hope for people, Philistines like me, to actually get cultured. So they're, they're, this is a good thing. Uh, thanks so much. And unfortunately, I have to note, I will not be able to attend this current event, but this is not the end of the line. You'll have your, there's more coming, aren't there? Well, I hope so. I tend to be doing it quite a few different places. So uh, it has been 12 years since I did it locally here in the where it began, and I'm, I'm happy to be doing it at home, so to speak. Good. And I'm sure that Dr. Andy Jones of Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour will be more than happy to, to read in my stead. I just, I'm confident of that. By the way, I do want to announce here for the first time that Dr. Andy Jones is officially hereby designated as the Poet Laureate of Radio Parallax. Just want to put that in. All right, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Got lots more. 